when things get sort of on this sort of automatic loop, that's the problem. And the interesting thing is our brain stops paying attention to things that happen over and over again. And so, you know, this is sort of where we get caught up because the more you have the same negative thought or the more you just have this habit that's sort of unconscious, your brain doesn't notice it as much because your brain is busy. It's got to take in a lot of things on a given day. And so anything that happens on a recurrent basis, it's on autopilot. Today, we're diving into the topic of self-sabotage. Why do we do it? How do we get a grip on it? And of course, how can we get out of our own way and do the things we say we actually want to do? Today's guest is Dr. Judy Ho. She's a doctor of psychology, in case you're wondering, and she's triple board certified in three different areas of psychology, which are clinical, forensic, and neuropsychology. She's the co-host of CBS's Face the Truth with Vivia A. Fox and is also a frequent guest on The Doctors. Dr. Judy defines self-sabotage as being when we get in the way of the goals that we set for ourselves and the things we say we want. It is the thoughts and behaviors that undermine our best intentions, right? We've all been there She has a new book out right now, you can get it, called Stop Self-Sabotage. And in it, she's outlining six steps for how you can get out of your own way. We're diving deeper on that today, and we're talking through a lot, but in particular, we are focusing on a couple of ways or areas in life that people are very prone to self-sabotage, and that's in our careers when it comes to food and health, and in particular binge eating, and what we do in our relationships that can really undermine success. So stay tuned for more. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Dr. Judy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am dying to talk self-sabotage. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. The reason I'm so excited to talk about self-sabotage is I feel like we all know it personally. Absolutely. I feel like it's such a common issue. People talk about I self-sabotage this, I sabotage myself. I mean, I feel like it's part of everyday vernacular. And yet a lot of people just kind of shrug and move on. They don't actually then deal with exactly what's holding them up. And that's really what my book is about. What do you believe constitutes self-sabotage? Like, how do we know when we're actually sabotaging ourselves? So we know that we're sabotaging ourselves when we're getting in our own way. We're getting in the way of the goals that we say we set for ourselves that we say we want. And so self-sabotage shows up as thoughts or behaviors that 
undermine our best interests and our conscious intentions. So, you know, it's things like, oh, I can never do that. So you just give up and don't try, or you act in ways that are counter to what's good for you. For example, binge eating half a cake when you know the importance of a healthier lifestyle. And when your doctor already told you many times that you need to make changes, that's another example of self-sabotage right there. And it's a phrase that many people throw around in casual conversation and a phenomenon that we can easily identify in the lives of our friends and loved ones. When we've got goals or intentions, so as a self-sabotaging behavior, thought, whatever it may be, is it typically related, as you just mentioned there, to a conscious intention or goal? Exactly. And you may have even talked about this with other people. You know, I want to get healthier. I want to start an exercise plan. I want a good romantic relationship. How come I can't have one? I want a more fulfilling career, but I still am stuck in the same old job that I've been in for the last five years. All of these things are really what get in the way of us doing better. It's just the things that we tell ourselves, sometimes even the things that we tell our friends that make us feel defeated and like we can't make positive change. What is the price we're paying when we self-sabotage? Is it holding us back from the lives we could have? Absolutely. I mean, I think basically it holds us back from our best lives. Over time, self-sabotage zaps our motivation, it zaps our drive. And when we fail time and time again to achieve our goal, but we can't identify why, we become frustrated, we become defeated, we stop trying. And that starts to really wreak havoc on the way we feel about ourselves. You know, all human beings want to feel like they are active agents in their lives, that we have some power and control over our lives. And when you start to lose that feeling of a sense of control and power. It's really hard. Slowly, we might stop dreaming big. We might just settle for what we have, even though we're dissatisfied. And it can just lead us to miss a lot of great opportunities to get our life back on track. I'm a little bit interested in your personal journey with how did you get to the point that you wanted to write a book about self-sabotage, Dr. Judy? Well, self-sabotage for me is such an important topic to discuss because I wanted to shine a light on this and empower people to be their best selves. I want to see people having rewarding careers and good relationships and better health. And I think a big reason for why I started to write this is because I saw that there were so many people in my life, you know, really successful people who in most areas of their lives, they're just go-getters, they're killing it. And then just one area of their life, they just can't get it together. You know, most people who find that self-sabotage becomes a problem for them are not like sabotaging all the areas of their lives. You know, they may have a great career and a great romantic relationship, but just can't get their diet back on track or their diet and their health is great. Their career is great, but they can't find a good romantic relationship. And a big message in my book is that self-sabotage is universal. We all do it from time to time, but when it starts to routinely get in the way of your career, of your job, of your goals, that's when we need to take a harder look at it. And I know how incredibly common self-sabotage is. Earlier on in my own career, I felt like procrastination was a problem for me. You know, I would love the, the kind of push that I would feel waiting for the last minute to finish an assignment in grad school. You know, I felt like that really drove me, gave me motivation until you start to realize that you were producing totally suboptimal products. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, until you realize yeah. that it may not be working for you. 
Right, right. But you know, for a while in my, my life, I felt like it did. So like, that's also kind of maybe a lie that you tell yourself. I mean, maybe it worked in college when I had all the energy in the world and just cramming for an exam in the last 24 hours actually worked very well, but it doesn't work that way forever. You know, your, your assignments get more complex. Like you need to devote the time and energy to start early. And it really did take me a hard look at myself to say, this is no longer working. And I didn't do that until I failed an assignment in grad school. And my professor said, you know, your last paper was so good, but this paper was horrible. Um, what happened? And also I saw you turn this in at 3am cause that's when my email came in. And just so you know, that's not going to work from now on. And I needed somebody to kind of shine a light on my own version of self-sabotage before I was able to correct that as well. So I just want to really demystify this for people, make people understand that it's common. There's nothing wrong with it. But once you realize it is getting in the way of you doing better, we got to fix it. I love this example of procrastination because it's something that comes up a lot in my coaching sessions with my clients. So I would love to dive a little deeper. You were a procrastinator. I love the example of grad school. You have this incident where you fail one paper or an assignment because you've you've sucked at it basically because you waited till the last minute. So was mm-hmm. that kind of like an inciting event that helped you realize that you had to do things differently? And then where did you go after that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. I'm so glad to hear that you work on procrastination with all of your coaching clients as well. Just so common, you know, it's a, such a common problem. And a lot of people I know who, uh, who, uh, self-sabotage in this particular way, there was a time when that worked out well for them. And actually at a time they actually even got accolades, you know, and they thought, wow, this is the way to go, you know, and it gives them that adrenaline. So for me, it was definitely an inciting event. I don't know if I knew at that time to call this self-sabotage. Although it clearly looking back was, and what I mean by that is this particular professor was really famous. I had written two papers for her earlier in the semester. She was saying that they were the best papers she had been reading and that I was the best in the class. I mean, so clearly there was a huge self-sabotage element here because I was like on track to be, you know, one of her favorite students. And then I fail a paper, right? So, um, you know, that, I think that element of you were on the right track and then you're the one who took yourself off that right track, um, was a big part of this. And it was an inciting event for me to try to look at this more and be more understanding of what was leading me to, to do this. And I understood that there was an element of this that was very exciting, you know, waiting till the last minute and performing and then doing a good job. Like it made me feel good about myself, but then you have that one time when it doesn't work and you feel horrible about yourself. And, you know, thank goodness that this was just in grad school. I mean, the stakes are so much lower on a paper, but now I'm treating patients. I'm doing work in the courts. I mean, you can't miss a deadline. There's no excuse. This is not just an academic assignment. This is real life, right? So I definitely think that that was an inciting event for me to really look at these patterns and and have to change my own thinking about it and what procrastination means and what it was costing and, and to start to put myself on a more planned way to work on things earlier and then to derive pleasure and excitement from that instead. And so it really took like some configuring of my old beliefs and putting new behaviors in place. Right. It started with reconfiguring your own beliefs. So like Mm -hmm. you mentioned there, 
recognizing what it was costing you and that procrastination may not be the best way to get things done, but then putting behaviors around it. Obviously, through this event, you decided that procrastination maybe wasn't the best. There was a mindset shift for you. Yes, absolutely. And so it's sort of this idea. It was really funny when I think back about how I felt about people who would study super early. You know, I had a lot of friends who were huge planners. They would start studying for an exam two, three weeks ahead of time. I was always that person who started studying for an exam a couple days before, you know, I mean, obviously I was keeping up with the assignments, but in terms of the actual studying, I wouldn't do that until the last minute. And it was a really weird thing that I would almost think of people who started too early. Like, why would you do that? You know, kind of having these kind of almost judgmental thoughts about why they would be so anxious to start so early. And then I realized, you know, how freeing is it when you know that that's checked off and the day before your exam, you don't have to stay up all night. You can go to sleep at a normal hour, you know, like it's really about under understanding the pros of taking this new approach and, and, and being able to, again, as I mentioned, you know, putting these replacement behaviors into place, being able to say, you know, what is it that's getting in the way of me starting early and what kind of behavioral routines can I substitute for these other behavioral routines that weren't working and leading to procrastination? Like, what do I need to change? And on an actual behavioral level and actually putting that plan pen to paper so that you actually follow it. You know, a lot of people will say, I have a plan, but you know, maybe they've thought about it in their heads and they didn't write it down. And I am such an advocate of the power of writing something down, making it concrete and making it real is a big part of encouraging the follow through of a plan that you've made. I so need to talk about this more because I feel like so many people out there are going to be going, I know what I should be doing. I know I should be studying earlier. I know I should be doing whatever it is. But we're talking about this behavioral follow through. How did you personally get yourself to stick to studying earlier, to not waiting to the last minute? Like, how do we stick to the things we say we want at that behavioral level? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is, of course, to write it down and commit to it in your mind, but also to share it with people. A big part of sharing it with somebody makes it real for you. You know, now now it's out there. You've told somebody, you know, this idea of an accountability buddy can work very well in the situation where you tell somebody and you ask them to check in with you to see if you've actually started the plan. So if you say, I'm going to start studying seven days before, ask your accountability buddy, call me on Monday or text me on Monday and ask me if I start planning for this exam. That would be, you know, one other way. The other thing that's really big too, and I think that sometimes we forget, you know, how much we are subject to reinforcement. I mean, human beings, we love to be reinforced, you know, whether that positive reinforcement is in the form of a concrete reward, or it's like something like social reinforcement when you get encouragement from others. And I think that if you're still having a hard time sticking to your plan, It definitely helps to actually set a little reward for yourself once you've achieved one of the goals along the way. So if you decided that you were going to spend three hours today studying for this exam, and then at the end of that, giving yourself a little treat, whether it's an hour of binge watching on Netflix or it's a mini little shopping trip for something under $100 on Amazon, whatever it is that kind of gets you to feel rewarded and positive about sticking to your plan over time, you don't need that quite as much. But in the beginning, to be able to start a new behavioral routine, 
don't underestimate the power of that. You know, setting these little rewards for yourself so that you can have something to look forward to. Another great reward would just be, you know, after you've studied the three hours, then you can go out to dinner with your friends. You know, just making sure that you build in things for yourself to reward yourself somehow along the way. We've talked about procrastination, which like I said, I think is a big one. You touched on binge eating at the start. I was recently at a conference and for me personally, binge eating has never been an issue, but I was at this women's conference and the leader asked about binge eating and I was mind blown by how many women raised their hand in this group and said that this was a way in which they sabotage themselves is this relationship with food that they know is unhealthy but they do it anyway can we talk a little bit more about binge eating and how you see that playing out as a form of self-sabotage Oh, absolutely. You know, I have so many examples of people who I've worked with where, again, you know, in general, their lives are really together, but they find that they binge eat for a variety of different reasons. And sometimes it's boredom. Sometimes it's habit. Sometimes it's because they felt like they already went off their plan for the day. So then why not just go crazy and start over tomorrow? You know, there's all of these different reasons for why people self-sabotage in this way. And in my book, I talk a lot about the reason why self-sabotage is universal. You know, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, some of which are biological and evolutionary. But, you know, when we think about this idea of binge eating, it, it becomes a routine for some of us because it's somewhat rewarding in that particular moment. So when you're binge eating, it feels so good. It's like, oh, I'm being comforted by the food. The food tastes good. I mean, there's all of these tangible um, rewards in the moment. Unfortunately, right after that moment, you feel horrible about yourself. You're beating yourself up in your head. You're thinking about all the ways in which you have to now undo the damage that you've done. And it can really set people back. And so I think the binge eating pattern especially is something that is conducive to understanding the underlying reason for why you're doing it. You know, why are you motivated to do this? Is it just comfort? Is it boredom? Is it you don't feel like you can do any better, so just give in to your impulses? I mean, whatever the negative thought is that's underneath it, you have to identify that first. And then once you find that negative thought, you have to come up with a different type of thought that's more representative of the situation. Sometimes we get stuck in these negative thought loops and your brain just sort of starts to take it as a truth. But you know, just because you have a thought doesn't mean that it's true. Our culture is so fixated on language. You know, when we think a thought, we mean, we think, oh my gosh, that's already happening or it is happening or it has happened. It's obviously not true. A thought is just a mental event. Like let's not get too attached to it and let's see it for what it is. So once you notice that this underlying thought is really just a mental event, that it doesn't have to be reality, it loosens up this sort of idea that it's inevitable. The binge eating is inevitable. And then you can start to make the behavioral change. You can start to come up with what I call replacement behaviors. There's a whole chapter on the book about this where you come up with a behavior that directly competes with you binge eating. And so, you know, what I mean by that is sometimes people will say, well, instead of binge eating, I'll just watch TV. That doesn't really work. That's not a real competing behavior because a lot of people will watch TV and eat at the same time. That's when they binge eat the most. <laughs> a, a real competing behavior is a behavior that actually would get in the way of you doing the bad habit. So, 
for some people, it would be drinking seltzer water. It would be chewing gum. It would be taking a walk around the block. It would be cleaning out a small area of their room. It would be doing a puzzle with their hands because all of these activities would directly get in the way of you eating a brownie instead, you know, and that's what we need to do. We have to find these behaviors that would actually directly compete with the bad habit. And so that's a way to, to, to manage that. Another way to manage the binge eating is to try to set a timer. People don't realize that biologically we have a thermostat in, inside of ourselves. And if we want to meet, we want to reach for that second serving of a food, just set your timer for 20 minutes. It's amazing how that urge to eat the second serving will go away within 20 minutes for most people because after that, you've become distracted, you're doing other things, and then you realize, you know what, I actually feel pretty full. I'm not really craving it as much as I was just 20 minutes ago. Part of the binge eating pattern happens because we're being mindless about it. Mm. And so when we approach it with a mindful intention, it really does change and basically disconnect us from this negative cycle that continues without us paying attention to it. That's what I'm hearing is really the the theme of so much of what you're saying is that when we can bring awareness to our reasons and our behaviors, it's only then that we can question them. But the problem is that most of us are self-sabotaging unconsciously. Absolutely. And I think that when things get sort of on this sort of automatic loop, that's the problem. And the interesting thing is our brain stops paying attention to things that happen over and over again. And so, you know, this is sort of where we get caught up because the more you have the same negative thought or the more you just have this habit that's sort of unconscious, your brain doesn't notice it as much because your brain is busy. It's got to take in a lot of things on a given day. And so anything that happens on a recurrent basis, it's on autopilot. And so a big part of this is taking it out autopilot. Like, what am I doing? Let's take a good look at it. And I think that's why we have to sort of really come face to face with self-sabotage because so much of these self-sabotaging behaviors are clearly unconscious because consciously you want better for yourself. So, and that's, what's inexplicable for most people. They're like, I don't get it. I, I say, I want to have better health and yet I'm doing this. And, and it's because so much of it is mindless. And so that awareness is the first most important step. We have to take something out of autopilot so we can actually deal with Oh, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm getting in my head, like, what am I doing? And then asking, why am I doing it? And there's so much power just getting to the bottom of why, because like you said, binge eating for some people is boredom. And I'm sure for other people, it's like, it's just a routine. I sit down, I watch TV, I grab something to eat. Just, it's like so unconscious. Okay, so binge eating, procrastination, are there any other sort of very typical ways in which people self-sabotage that are worth touching on? Absolutely. I think that two other really common ones is getting in the way of your own career and also getting in the way of you having a better romantic relationship. Oh Those my are- gosh. We so need to talk about these some more because I've just, I wrote down when you were, when you were talking before about that idea of the upper limit. And I don't know if you're familiar with Gay Hendricks work, but when you were talking about when you were in grad school and you're on the path to be a favorite student, it's almost like you cut yourself off at the knees. Like where does, where does career sabotage come from in a lot of cases? 
Well, you know, career sabotage can come on in a lot of interesting ways. And so one of the things that I talk about very early on in the book is doing a self-assessment of like, what is your underlying driving force of your self-sabotage? And I made this acronym so that it would be easy to remember. And the acronym is called LIFE. So it's L-I-F-E. Each of the letters stands for one very common factor that people self-sabotage. So L is for low or shaky self-esteem. So, you know, when you don't have a strong sense of self-esteem or at least not a consistent sense of self-esteem, you can very much get in your own way. And I stands for internalized belief. So for a lot of people, it's the messages that you learned when you were a child, perhaps from your parents or other important adults in your life. You know, don't, you know, don't leap too far. Don't try too hard because then you might fail. You know, these types of beliefs are very common for people who might then later on not go for a higher position in their career, not think that they might be good enough to put themselves up for a promotion or ask for it. F stands for fear of the unknown. You know, how many people know that maybe there might be better out there, but then because you don't know what the path might look like and what if um, it's not comfortable and, oh. and, you know, then you kind of just don't go for it. You're like, ah, at least I, at least the devil, you know, you know, it's sort of this idea. And then finally E is for excessive need for control with change comes a sort of uh, dispersion of your control. you can't just control everything when you're trying to make a change. You don't know how it's going to go. Sometimes you have to leap before you see how it's going to turn out. And that is a big one for people to not move forward in their career because, well, at least I know how my job works now and I know how, how I'm good at it. But if I try to make a career change, I'd have to start all over. I don't even know what that would look like. And that sort of excessive need for control of like having everything in place and knowing exactly how things are going to turn out can also keep people in their place. And so so sometimes being a perfectionist is actually part of what holds people up. I'm just looking at these three, I mean, sorry, for life, the acronym, and I'm like, wow, how I can see every single one of those points tripping someone up in their career progression or keeping them stuck. Yes. Wow. And for some people, they will say, oh, I'm, I'm really just one of these. And then there'll be other people who say, I'm two, I'm three, I'm four of these. And I think that that's the point, you know, for everybody, it's definitely a different mixture, but with every single person I've worked with, I would have to say that at least one of these factors was the driver in their self-sabotage. And, you know, being able to take a really good look at yourself and making that self-assessment is really the first step because then you can see, okay, this is what's holding me back. And all of these things actually are protective in nature. And that's what I tell people, you know, our brains want to protect us. Our brains do not have ulterior motives other than to keep us alive and to keep us functional. But sometimes our brains are like an overprotective parent. It kind of goes overboard. And so some of that some of that low self-esteem, for example, and oh, let me not reach higher because what if I fail? You know, it's your brain saying, well, what if you can't handle it if you fail? So maybe let's just keep everything in the same place because I don't want you to get hurt. I mean, your brain wants the best for you, but it's interesting because evolutionarily we get into this fight or flight mostly because of physical issues, meaning that in back in the caveman days, you know, the fight or flight gets uh, ignited when we're running away from bears. We're literally kind of on the verge of life or death physically. Well, as we've evolved as human beings and being eaten by bears is not as much of a reality for most of us, the fears are more in emotional and psychological forms. You know, it's like, oh, what if he doesn't say yes if I ask him out on a date? Or what if I ask my boss for a promotion and he laughs in my face? These are the kind of things that 
will ignite this fight or flight and cause us to retreat because our brains have not evolved to distinguish between physical and emotional threat. And so we have to sort of kind of almost, you know, reprogram our brain to say, hey, of course it's scary, but guess what? Everything that's worth achieving in life is a little scary. Oh, I am so chirping the same song as you are. (laughs) I love it. Uh, With uh, relationships, this is just making me think of another client I have at the moment. And I just challenged her last week. I was like, it's time to get out of your own way. If you're telling me that you want a relationship and it is very important to you, what are you doing to make this happen? And yes. it's and I just see it in, in a lot of my clients as well that there are these unconscious beliefs that stop people from going after what they really want, whether that is a relationship. Can we talk a little bit more about how you've seen self-sabotage show up when it comes to romantic relationships? Oh my gosh, this is a great topic. And I I love that you're working with your client and challenging your client and saying, if this is what you say you want, what are we really doing to make this happen? I was tough on her. I was like, I need some behaviors. I need some actions. (laughs) You got to give them that tough love sometimes, you know, and, and it's so interesting because what I see oftentimes with people who struggle with getting into the relationship that they say they want is particularly a couple of the life factors, you know, so one is certainly fear of the unknown. And another one is certainly excessive need for control because guess what? There's two people here. You can't control everything. No matter what you do, you cannot control how that person feels about you necessarily. And you can't control what they're going to do next. I mean, these are big things. And at the same time, I also can see L and I coming into play because sometimes earlier in life, people have gotten the message that maybe they're not lovable. At least it makes them question whether they are, you know, perhaps they didn't get as much attention or as much encouragement from their parents as they would have liked to. And it makes them scared to put themselves out there again. And will another person truly love me? You know, can I ever get that kind of unconditional love that our parents are supposed to imprint upon us at some point in life? And I think that's why the relationship thing is so scary for people. So I find a lot of people who are so successful in their career, they're like workaholics and their relationship just takes a a back seat and they'll tell themselves things like, well, you know, I just don't have time for a relationship yet. They also say they really want one. So it just doesn't even make sense. And I think these inexplicable behaviors come up because yet again, they're trying to protect themselves from potential disappointment. So the way I see this play out commonly is a couple of ways. One is the person will just not even date or they will, but they'll be super critical of everyone they date. They won't even let themselves get close to anybody. Everybody, you know, they all of a sudden get super picky about things that don't even make sense. So they just don't let anybody in. You know, that's one way that it can play out. A second way that it can play out is that they kind of just date people who they think are safe. So these people are not necessarily horrible people. They're not abusive or anything, but they just don't challenge the person. They don't make the person excited about their relationship, but you know, they're people that this individual believes won't hurt them, won't break up with them. And, and yet sometimes they do. So, you know, you choose the people who are safe. You choose these people who you think, I mean, it's sort of like when you choose this person and your friends are like, wow, like, what do you see in that guy? Or that person's friends will say, whoa, you really lucked out there being with that woman. Like, that's not normal. Like, you don't want that kind of dynamic and relationship. So you choose these people who, for lack of a better word, maybe aren't even up to their par. But 
oh, they might be safe. And then when that relationship fails, guess what happens? Then you really second guess yourself. Wow, I guess I'm not even lovable by this safe choice. And it just Uh, makes you retreat even further. So it's this downward spiral. And like you said, it's driven by this desire to self-protect, but that can really trip us up. Okay, I've got so many little ideas jumping around in my head, but I want (laughs) to jump to our intermission questions. Dr. Judy, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Are you a morning person or a night person? I used to be a night person, but now I'm a morning person. I wake up every morning at like 5 (laughs) a.m. So how did you make that switch? You know, big part of it was my husband's lifestyle. When I started dating him, he's definitely a morning person. And so for us to be able to maximize our quality time, I had to get on his clock. And actually now I love it because I get so much done in the quiet hours of the morning. I mean, it's kind of a similar effect as if you're a night owl, which I used to be. I just get the most done in the morning. And so that's when people aren't calling you yet, when you don't have any meetings. I just love having a slow morning, having coffee, going running. But it was really hard at first to make the switch I definitely had to do it gradually like you know 20 minutes of an earlier bedtime slowly slowly until I would be going to bed around 11 p.m as opposed to 2 or 3 a.m oh my my (laughs) that's a huge shift I like it so this is a perfect example of when you had to change the behaviors but you did it bit by bit yes what is on your bedside table at the moment can you remember yeah so I'm currently reading a book called The Way of Kings. I just started it. It's by Brandon Sanderson. Um, this is a sort of sci-fi fantasy um, uh, genre, which is actually my favorite genre of books and movies. And so this is a book that I picked up at the at the encouragement of a book blogger friend of mine who said that if I love Lord of the Rings and if I love Game of Thrones, then I will love this book. So I just started it and it's wonderful. Oh, what's it called again? It's called The Way of Kings. It's book one of the Stormlight Archive. So there's, I, I think like, there might be several. I don't know exactly how many, but this book is also a kind of a monster read. I'm thumbing through it right now, actually. And uh, it has a thousand, this book is a thousand and five pages. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a dedicated, it's a dedicated bedside table activity. <laughs> exactly. It'll take me a while to get through it. <laughs> What's your favorite self-care activity, Dr. Judy? My favorite self-care activities, I have two. One of them is running. I run every morning. I run six to seven uh, seven days a week. And um, I also uh, play music. I sing and I play the piano. And that's my other favorite self-care activity. Just, you know, doing something that doesn't necessarily have a goal, but you just do it for enjoyment. I've been singing and playing piano since I was four. So it's always been a very important part of my life. So I still do that now. And I have a, a grand piano in my house, actually, my, my childhood grand piano, which when I moved to this new place, I actually finally had the room to be able to bring it here. So I brought it from my parents' house. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I love the concept. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross calls it play. And and yes. I love it when we talk about it as play, you know, something that has no objective attached, yet the joy yes. you get from doing it. Love it. It's so fun. What is a book that has touched you at an important point in your life? So like a favorite book, but one that perhaps you read just at the right time. You know, I think a really important book for me, and this has to do with the work that I do and certainly influenced it, is called The Happiness Trap. It's by Russ Harris. Oh, I, I know that book. It's a good yes. book. 
I love it. You know, I just think that it was a really good twist on cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy was all about, you know, how do you change their, your thoughts that aren't working? And I think that there's a lot of value in that. But sometimes it's hard to change our thoughts directly. Sometimes you just have a negative thought and it is what it is. And so what do you do with that? And so I really love the way that he talks about kind of just diffusing the bomb almost like just don't let your thoughts affect you. Just let them be there and be okay with coexisting with thoughts that might be getting in your way. I love that. And I also love his focus on this idea of when you're in distress, you don't have to wait until the distress is over to do the things that are meaningful to you. That was a huge breakthrough for some of my patients. You know, they're like, well, when I feel less depressed, then I'll go get a job. Or when I feel less depressed, then I'll call my best friend. It's like, but why can't you be depressed and do those things anyway? Because, you know, you don't have to wait. You can be in distress and yet do things that you know will deter you at the same time. And of course, the byproduct of that is then your depression does lift because a huge part of depression is that you start to isolate yourself. You stop, you stop doing all the things that mean something to you. And so the byproduct of going ahead and doing it anyway is that your depression then will lift also. And so I really love that twist on how we can tackle difficult times in our lives yeah his his theories are based on is it acceptance and commitment therapy isn't it act yeah yeah that's it yep yeah i love act it's a great book uh i feel like for me as well it was a breakthrough when i realized that you can kind of as a human feel two emotions simultaneously like we in terms of what i mean by that just more generally like just because we're in a low mood doesn't mean we have to be in that low mood all the time like there can be flickers of joy or flickers of hope and that it doesn't have to be all encompassing that we can hold more than one emotion in our bodies absolutely totally agree with that what is one thing in your day that you can't do without Oh, coffee. Um, I drink coffee every day. When I get up at 5 a.m., there's coffee. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I have a whole routine. I have like my Nespresso. Yeah, I really need to have my routine in the morning. And coffee is a big part of that routine. I drink it in the morning, every morning. It it just it it really gets me going. I mean, people have asked me before, you know, I I enjoy cocktails, you know, and people are like, well, do you what would you, you know, want to cut out alcohol or coffee? I'm like, this is a dumb question. (laughs) Like, I like alcohol. Like I don't drink alcohol every day, but I drink coffee every day. So definitely I need to keep the coffee in the mix. That is so funny. What's a life lesson that took you a good while to learn? Hmm. I think probably that, and this sounds so silly because it's such a basic life lesson, but it really took me a long time to realize that our time with our loved ones is so limited, right? I mean, I think we take it for granted, especially when you're younger, like, oh, we'll have time to do this. We'll have time to do that. We'll have time to check in with our parents later. I don't feel that way now. And I think it probably all started when I lost my grandmother, who was extremely important to me. She was, she had a big part in raising me because my parents were both so busy, you know, trying to, trying to build a career and trying to support us that they were working two jobs each when I was a young child. So I was raised by my maternal grandmother um, for a big part of that time. So, you know, she's like my second mom. And when I lost her, I just felt like this huge sense of the time that we have with our loved ones are limited and you can't really take any day for granted. And so that's how I feel now. I mean, I, 
you know, I, I love my parents, but obviously when I was in high school, I found them to be extremely annoying. I was just like, <laughs> Oh my God, don't follow me around. Don't talk to me. I was happy to get away from them in college, you know, like all of this stuff. And now I love them. I, I wish I would spend more time with them. Like I'd really cherish the times that we get to get together. And I feel that way about all the loved ones in my life now. But you know, I think when you're younger, you feel kind of invincible. Everything feels like you have so much time to do it. And now it's like, no, you don't actually. And you, if you want to, if you want to say something to somebody that you care about, you should say it today. You know, oh, you shouldn't wait on that. That is a, that's a powerful life lesson. Yeah. How would you describe the soul? Do you believe in a soul, Dr. Judy? And if so, how would you describe it? Oh my gosh. You know, I've come back and forth on this idea a long time. I don't really know exactly how I would define a soul. I definitely think that that concept of soul exists. I, I don't know how to quite define it, except that it's really like non-tangible essence to a person that might last beyond the physical being itself. And I say might, because I don't know what that looks like. You know, I think some people would love this idea of an afterlife where you're really just walking around looking like yourself. But I think that a soul could be just an energy mm. force, you know, it can be anything. And I've had a lot of things happen in my life where it's really solidified this concept that there is some semblance of a life after death. I don't think that it's the kind of concept that, you know, for example, like Christian's theology might say very concretely, like, oh, we have this idea of heaven. What does that look like? Does it mean that we're just walking around looking like ourselves? I'm not sure if I believe that part. <laughs> yeah. Even though even though I'm, I, even though I'm Christian, I'm Catholic, but I, I don't know how I feel about that. But I do know that there's something because I had what I would describe as visitation dreams after my grandmother passed away. Oh my gosh! See, this is so Which interesting. So you're talking. Amazing. So you're, so they were very real to life. Like she, you really felt her essence because you called the soul a non tangible essence. Did you feel? Yeah your grandmother's essence through those dreams. I a hundred percent did. And I feel like it was very different from another type of dream I had after she died, which was more like, just like a remembrance dream. Like I would be really sad and I would like remember, you know, certain things and I would have dreams about that, but I, I did not feel like she was necessarily with me in those moments. And then I had dreams where I felt very, very much that she was with me. And when I woke up, I cried because it felt so powerful. My husband's father just passed away a few months ago and we had some amazing experiences um, around the time that he died and after he passed away. Um, and so one quick example of this was that we cremated him and we had a really lovely small memorial at our house. And afterwards, you know, we left his ashes at our house just for a few days. So we told my husband's mom, we'll return him after a few days, but we're going to keep him for a little while. And she said, yeah, that's fine. Well, his parents are best friends. They met when she was 13 and he was 16 and they've never been apart since. Oh so, my. Yeah. So I'm sure that, I mean, their connection is so strong. Well, after five days of being at our house, all of the sensor lights in the closets of our house went up at the same time and we couldn't turn them off. Oh my gosh. For like a whole night. And that was just really odd. Like I would go and turn it off and it would just turn back on and it wouldn't <laughs> go off. They're, they're, sensor, they're sensor lights. So, you know, they, they go off after there's no activity for a couple minutes, but like they just never went off. So, okay. So like we just went to bed and like all the lights in our closets were on all night. And then at 5 a.m., 
we get a uh, we get a doorbell ringing at our door and we go to the door and there's nobody there then we look at the security footage and there's Crazy. nobody there and we're like whoa so we're like so then my husband's like you know do you think my dad wants to go home to mom i'm like Maybe. <laughs> so we're like we're so we call her we're like we're bringing him today and guess what it's never happened again oh my gosh he was letting you know it was time for him to be with yeah her. he's like i'm Aww. done i'm done with this yeah, <laughs> thank nice you for having me here i need to be there exactly it's really cool yeah wow. so you know things like that happen that make me believe in the soul for sure final intermission question what does fulfillment mean to you you know, fulfillment means a lot of different things, but I think that fulfillment means that you look back and you don't have a regret about what happened. You know, I think that that's a real gift when you can look back on a decision, look back on a time in your life and say, yeah, maybe I've made mistakes. Maybe these didn't necessarily turn out perfectly, but I still have no regrets about the way I've acted. You know, I think that that's really the most important thing is that you can look at yourself, you know, in the mirror at night and and be okay with who you are. And that doesn't mean that you don't have flaws because we all do, but it's just being okay and accepting that that to me is fulfillment. All right. I only have a couple more questions, but we, we touched on it earlier in the interview, this concept of motivation. What do you see as true motivation and how can we start to tap into that within ourselves more? Well, motivation is really interesting because you have this sort of strong sense of wanting to approach something that's important to you and you get really excited about it at first. And then it usually kind of peters out over time. And why is that? Well, for me, I think a big part of why motivation can wane over time is because one, it's not a finite resource. You know, it is kind of like when you work out and your muscles fatigue. So there's definitely sort of a fatiguing effect. So on the one hand, you do need to sort of pick your time about like when to go for it and then when to let yourself relax. There's nobody who can be motivated 24 seven a day. This is no one. So you have to sort of readjust your expectations about what motivation is. But I do think that motivation can be strengthened if you are basing your goals on your values. So sometimes people will make a goal and then after they achieve it, they feel kind of empty inside. And I think it's because maybe that goal wasn't really attached to an important value for them. And values are what we want our life to stand for. You don't really get to check it off. It's not like you run a marathon. That's a goal. You checked it off bucket list. You never have to do it again. Um, values are things that you want people to know you for that, that, you know, is essential to you as a person. So these are things like honesty, integrity, a sense of adventure, a sense of community. You never really have enough of it. You know, you always want to pursue your value. And so if you can identify what your top values are, and then create goals that are based on that, then the motivation has a much longer shelf life. You know, you're able to kind of push through, especially during difficult times, because you remember why it's so important for you to reach this goal, because it is tied to one of your essential values. Oh, makes so much sense to me. Dr. Judy, if you could leave our listeners with one thing today, what would it be? Well, the one thing that I would leave your listeners with is that you can achieve whatever you put your mind to. And no matter what your past is, no matter what those internalized beliefs might be, no matter what your personality traits that might dictate, you know, you fearing change more than the average person, we can be agents of change. Human beings thrive on change. We need to change to be able to survive. And it's something that sort of comes with a natural next step. And so I would say, don't be afraid of doing those things. 
don't be afraid that maybe you're not going to be able to do what it is that you set out to do. I think, you know, there's concrete steps that we can take to make these changes. And once we do, we feel so much better about the next time we set a goal for ourselves because we have that confidence that I was able to do it in the past and I can do it again. And it's that sort of slow build that gives us that reassurance that we can do the things that we set out to do. That conversation with Dr. Judy really highlighted to me the importance of self-awareness. It's something I always come back to, but until we can become aware of the habits and routines that we are falling into that aren't serving us, we really are not going to be able to change those behaviors and thoughts that may be leading to them. You can find Dr. Judy over at her website, which is drjudyho.com. Stop Self-Sabotage, her brand new book, is available wherever good books are sold. You can find a link in the show notes or head over to my website, thrive.how forward slash podcast one, two, three. I've also put a little outline of that acronym that she said is the key to unlocking the reasons why we typically self-sabotage life in the show notes. You can find that there over at my website, thrive.how forward slash podcast one, two, three. I'm going to be back next week talking to you about courage and what it means and why it's important in our lives. So come back the week after the next for that. If you're not yet subscribed, go and hit that button so you do not miss it. And thank you to all you lovely people who've left more reviews. That's why I do this for you all out there and in the hope that it can make a positive impact in your lives. So I appreciate the love notes telling me it has. Until next time, beautiful people, keep thriving. <laughs>